Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only enact legislation within a narrow set of priorities, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and the people changing what is politically possible. Now, you may not know this, but K-12 education in the United States costs more than the entirety of national defense. Now, one of the reasons why this is underappreciated is because the bulk of the cost to educate students is covered by state and local governments rather than the federal government. Now, how they provide education services is pretty standard across the country. Kids go to the schools assigned to them, largely based on where they live. Every square inch of the country, there is a public school managed by a government entity that provides its services, and that's where kids in that area go. We hope it's a good school. Now, the Overton window around this issue has been pretty well locked up. The only debate seemed to have been how much more each year we're going to spend on public schools. But the Overton window has opened up a lot in the past 30 years. Public schools often compete with each other for students. Charter schools have popped up to provide parents options outside of the conventional school system. And states have started scholarships and savings accounts to help parents send their students wherever they think is best for their children. Now, West Virginia lawmakers recently made some major changes to their educational system, and Garrett Ballengee has been part of the coalition advocating for them. Garrett is the executive director for the Cardinal Institute, a think tank in West Virginia that, provide, or that pushes for economic and labor freedom and school choice. And the, school, the state has gone from having very little school choice to becoming the state with the most expansive school choice program in the nation. And they accomplished that over a short period of time. And Garrett helped bring that about. So Garrett, why do you hate public schools? <laughs> oh my goodness, what a question to start. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm, I'm excited to speak with you on, on several issues. Um, frankly, it's not so much that we hate public schools. Public schools do a good job for a lot of kids, right? Um, there are a lot of kids out there who are thriving in the public school environment for one reason or another. What we tried to do over the last five or six years was simply begin to design and advocate for a system that was there to help those students who were not thriving in a, in a traditional public school, right? Um, I think if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that even kids underneath the same household, underneath the same roof, have different learning aptitudes, different learning needs, different learning um, desires. And so really what the school choice movement is about across the country it's not a denigration of, it's of public schools. It's simply a recognition of the fact that we can do better and we have ideas on how, on how to actually structure that so we can best serve kids. What do you want out of your state's education system? Oh, my goodness. Well, sort of a, a Hayekian libertarian, I'm always a little bit hesitant to, to just give blanket statements like that. But I would say <laughs> this. It's, it's about designing a system that works the best for the most kids. And I think regardless of what you're talking about, whether it's um, education, whether it's, I don't know, medicine, uh, transportation, vehicles, cell phones, we have choices in all of our lives, right? Our, our, frankly, we probably have too many choices in, in some respects. 
except in K-12 education. And so really what we want to do is we want to design a system utilizing education savings accounts, charter schools, tax credit scholarship programs that allow kids, all kids, regardless of income, regardless of zip code, regardless of mom and dad's ability to pay a mortgage that comes with granite countertops or doesn't come with granite countertops, mm-hmm. to be able to find an education environment that facilitates his or her aptitudes. And so that's what our struggle has been over the last five or six years. And we've done that recognizing the fact that public schools are going to work out for a lot of kids. Okay. So tell me about some of those victories that you've had recently. Well, just for context, and you alluded to it in your opening, but I think it's important for for people to understand in West Virginia in 2015, this is when Cardinal got started. There was no school choice. There was no open enrollment. There was no charter schools. We didn't have the legislation allowing for charter schools and to say nothing of private school choice programs or tax credit scholarships or things like that. So we sort of come on the scene and we're evaluating the landscape. And to us, it was quite obvious that we had to work on school choice. Um, we spent Wait, around the national. Well, we spent around the national average mm-hmm. by per dollar of income of average income of a West Virginian. We were top five in the country as far as what we were spending towards our K twelve education budget, and the outcomes were frankly pathetic. They were they were sad. I'll put it like that. Maybe pathetic is not the best word. Sad. So there were really there was nobody really doing a sustained effort on school choice. West Virginia is traditionally a very union friendly state, you know, the home of the United Mine Workers. There's a long history of, of labor fights here in West Virginia for several different reasons. So we knew that we were really going to be taking on perhaps the strongest remaining organized entity in the entire state, which was teachers unions. Um, so fast forward, 2017 happens. We are the first state to experience the Red for Ed movement. Mm-hmm. So the teachers walk, teachers unions walked out for two straight weeks um, in response to ostensibly higher pay and, and uh, keeping insurance premiums the same level, things of that nature. The following year, they go out on strike again. Wait, it's uh, another. Can you tell some more people about what exactly they did? You said they they. They left work for, for a while? Yeah, what, so they, they... they literally just did not show up for work. All 55 of the school districts in West Virginia shut down for two weeks. So students in West Virginia lost 10 learning days. Um, they went down to the Capitol, often gathered in the hundreds, if not thousands, protesting again for higher pay raises, for uh, at least uh, stagnant premiums that teachers would have to pay. And eventually, the the legislature and the governor relented and and gave uh, teachers a 5% pay raise, which was then, this whole cycle was repeated the following year, with one major difference, which, and I had my suspicions about the the previous year's protests anyway, but this year, that year, which would have been 2018, I think, maybe 2019, they... uh, they again protested, but this time it was against education savings accounts and it was against charter schools. So I think it was at that point that folks began they, to understand. They were protesting against education savings accounts that didn't exist and charter schools that weren't there. Exactly. This was all in response to legislation that had been enrolled um, to, to establish both of those things. We can kind of get into that process here if you'd like at some point as well. But to us, I think that really, it was, that was a fundamental shift in what the unions were doing. I think all of us on some level can understand a strike if it's, in, if it's for higher pay or 
better coverage on insurance or whatever that may be. Because on some level, we all identify with that, right? Although this... I, I do want to say one thing that I don't quite identify with is that, that is, are all teacher salaries in West Virginia, or at least for public schools, set by the state legislature? Because I know in Michigan, that's something that every district negotiates over. Um, there, the state doesn't say how much you pay teachers. It says negotiate with, with your employees if they're unionized to set them. Is that Yeah, so in West Virginia, it's actually set by the state, if I'm not mistaken. And it's, uh, it's a statewide salary schedule. Mm-hmm. And the state is somewhat constrained because there's certain rules in place that this school district can only pay this much more than this school district, right? So you have kind of a wage floor and a wage ceiling mm-hmm. to some extent on what districts can pay their teachers. Now, that may not be such a problem in a state like, I don't know, South Dakota or North Dakota or Montana, where the state is surrounded by uh, other states that I would say are largely economically similar to those states. If you look at West Virginia, we are surrounded by places like D.C., Maryland, Virginia. Within those states are some of the wealthiest counties in the entire country. So oftentimes teachers in those states are being paid an extra twenty dollars or $25,000 more than a teacher in what West Virginia would because, again, those districts have been constrained by the statewide salary schedule. So um, that, there was that issue, although that has been, that has been reformed um, as well. So 2019, we're, we're at mm-hmm. the teacher strike. We have this huge omnibus education bill where we're trying to get charter schools established, education savings accounts established, higher teacher, uh, another teacher pay raise. Um, and that really throughout the legislative process that got gutted. Um, so what we ended up with in the form of choice was only three charter schools would be allowed in West Virginia every three years. Um, education Wait, savings the, accounts you were could ripped create out. Three every three years. And we're just capping this because we don't like them or skeptical. It was all part of the political compromise. I Mm -hmm. I think folks were just really taken aback and frightened of just the whole strike process, the whole, um, frankly, the the amplification ability of a union to kind of get their message out through the media. I think a lot of Mm -hmm. legislators were really just sort of taken aback by that. So ESAs had been ripped out, so there were no ESAs. The only thing was mandatory open enrollment and then three charter schools every three years. And there was no appeal path for any kind of charter school applicant. So the only authorizer was going to be your local county school board, which is something like the equivalent of Pepsi asking Coke for permission to open up a new vending machine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's all we got. 2020, it's an election year. I know a lot of our coalition was frankly just kind of tired of working on school choice. We had been kind of punched in the gut several years. And then 2021 happened. had a happens. victory, but the victory just didn't seem that substantial. Yeah, it was a, it was a Pyrrhic victory. Mm-hmm. Um, so then 2021 comes around and COVID-19 is there. Our, our coalition is re-energized. Um, and... We went from a state in 2015 that had no form of school choice, was kind of a, a laughing stock as it comes to school choice in the country, to, as you mentioned in your opener, the most expansive private school choice program in the country. So what is that? 90% of kids in West Virginia are immediately eligible. So that means everybody currently in public school is eligible for this. Or if your child is a matriculation age in a kindergarten, you will be eligible. And your child, if you choose to accept an ESA, will get 100% of the portion of the state funding. 
which is in West Virginia, is about forty six hundred dollars. Um, no income restrictions, no no anything other than were you in public school forty five at least forty five days the prior year, or are you uh, matriculating age into kindergarten? There's also now this is a little bit more esoteric. Or if you if you are in five percent details you want okay. Uh, I won't get too uh, heavy into the details, but there's a trigger mechanism that was put into place in the bill that if fewer than 5% of the eligible uh, population enrolls in the HOPE scholarship program, that opens it up to every student in West Virginia, private school, home school, public school. So um, there is a trigger mechanism to truly make it a universal private school choice program with absolutely zero restrictions. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, right now, the uh, the way that it conventionally works is that uh, taxpayers just pay for um, uh, money to uh, conventional school districts to educate students in, in their area. And this one is you've telling parents, here's $4,600, use it to best uh, educate your child as you see fit. Is that kind of the, the policy in a nutshell then? Yeah, that's basically the 30,000 foot view. Um, obviously, we are going through the rulemaking process right now. The, the program will be administered by the treasurer's office in West Virginia. There will be a, a kind of a HOPE scholarship board. HOPE scholarship is the name given to our RESA program that will be composed of parents, the treasurer himself, uh, a designee of the, of the governor and the Senate and the House of Delegates. They, they will be largely responsible for coming up with the list of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of hiccups in this program, but, but the intent of the program itself is to be as expansive and inclusive as possible on what could be considered an educational expense. So we, even in the bill, there, it's allowed you can purchase an individual course from the local public school. So if your local mm -hmm. public school has a fantastic chemistry teacher, your homeschooling cohort or your micro school cohort is not comfortable teaching chemistry, you could purchase it from the local high school because obviously there's certain economies of scale there that, um, you know, parents should be allowed to take advantage of. So that's what, uh, so that's what the bill is trying to do. So we're really excited. We're hoping, frankly, that West Virginia can become kind of a petri dish of education innovation in a way that really it never has been. Um, so we're excited to see what the next few years can bring. Who are your allies on the issue? Oh, my goodness. Um, so if we rewind back to 2015, there was a huge market gap in just talking about school choice. To me, the, perhaps there was no bigger disconnect in like a national policy issue and lack of discussion in West Virginia than that of school choice. And so that's one of the reasons why I think Cardinal and groups like Americans for Prosperity, Institute for Justice, Catholic Education Partners, Ed Choice, um, the Atlas Network. These were all groups in one way or another that we worked with on school choice. But I think it was that gap. It was one of those things where everybody knew something was wrong about education, but there was no one there to speak in a sophisticated kind of um, think, -tanky, think tanky way on that issue. And so Cardinal was able to come in there, recognize the problem, uh, help people visualize what an alternative future looks like, and then just begin to activate that. Um, and so that's what we did. So we made sure that we reached out to every homeschooling group in West Virginia, every mm -hmm. private Christian school association, parents. If you have a civic group that has 10 people meeting and we have to drive three hours to talk about education reform, we will do that. Mm -hmm. um, we worked quite a bit with National School Choice Week. We had the uh, we host the largest school choice 
week event every year in the state. We have hundreds of kids and families come down to Charleston and celebrate school choice. Um, and so we really try to be as big a tent as possible because, I mean, frankly, given the, the magnitude of the fight, we needed as many people as we could get. Yeah, but that's kind of hard on this issue, right? Because it's it's you and the couple of people in the state that you know tries to exercise the little degree of school choice that you have versus the public schools that everyone's gone to, the majority of people have gone to, uh, that everyone has an experience with. Um, you know, like it seems like it's such a lopsided battle. Then, I mean, uh, how how did you? How were you able to get this from uh, to a victory from something that seems like you're already outgunned coming into it? Well, there's no doubt about it. School choice advocates are outgunned. Um, that's just a it's a reality of the situation, and you have to go into this fight understanding that. So then the question becomes like, how strategic can you be? What are what do your tactics look like, um, and how do you really just ensure? I, so. I've done several of these interviews at, at this point, and kind of the best analogy I've been able to come up with or, or metaphor is the school choice battle resembles something like a snowball going down the hill. So you have to make sure the snowball continu- continues its momentum down the hill. Sometimes it goes a little faster. Sometimes it goes a little slower. But along the way, it's growing. It's continuing to get bigger. It's continuing to bring on allies. It's this is where the metaphor begins to go off course ever so slightly, but it, its arguments get a little bit better, right? And so eventually that snowball turns into an avalanche and it cannot be ignored, right? And that's what we did. We were, frankly, relentless just talking about this issue. And West Virginia, and I suspect in a lot of other states, where there's such a need for different thinking, for new thinking, that when that thinking comes along, it's just sort of like you're busting the balloon uh, on some level. So Cardinal was able to exert, I would say, an outsized amount of impact and influence on this debate, given our size, because nobody was talking about this, mm-hmm. right? And so when you come out and you say, look, guys, the emperor has no clothes here, suddenly a lot of other people see too. So we were able to bring on other other allies and other advocates and, you know, I know you guys up there at Mackinac are a bunch of nerds just like we are here. And so we really celebrate the concept of comparative advantage, right? So Cardinal's comparative advantage is not lobbying per se. It's not going out and, uh, you know, knocking on doors or that kinds of thing. It's about coalition management and it's about educating people on the, the potential for school choice to turn the state around. And so that's exactly what we did. There were other folks in the coalition, formal and, and informal, that have other comparative advantages. So we made sure that those, those organizations and those people utilize those comparative advantages. And um, again, over time, it just, you know, one of my, frankly, one of my fra- favorite Milton Friedman quotes, and I, I always butcher this, but just to paraphrase, sort of our collective responsibility, right, is sort of, think tank advocates, public policy intellectuals, is to ha- develop alternatives to existing public policy, right? So that when the time comes, the politically inevitable, or I'm sorry, the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable, right? And that's yeah, exactly what- we doing, shifting the Overton window. That's exactly what we did here in West Virginia. So although COVID-19 was important, it was very much the straw that broke the camel's back. We've been building that that bale of hay for quite mm-hmm. some time. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's sort of how we did it. Mm-hmm. 
What was the strongest part of your coalition or the work that you did to get this uh, get this accomplished? I mean, did you have like a persuasive argument that that really helped to uh, put this together? Did you have some good stories? Like, like what do you all think the above. were things that helped? Yeah, yeah all, all the above. It's tough to say here's the strongest part of our argument, but I think it's important for folks to understand that when you're writing op-eds, when you're doing radio, television, when you're hosting events, when you're going out to that 10-person Rotary Club meeting, you never know who's in the audience. You never know who's listening to you or reading your words. And so we always just try to be have a lot of output, right? Just continuing to discuss this issue. And over time, we were just able to build such a stable of allies on this issue. Um, some of these folks in these audiences or that would read op-eds or would attend a Rotary Club meeting or whatever it may be, a lot of them turned out to be legislators two or three years later, right? Mm-hmm. Or perhaps you're talking to somebody who's a freshman legislator and they're in the crowd and they're hearing your facts on the, the state of West Virginia's education system and they eventually become a chairman of an education committee or something like this, right? And so mm-hmm. I think the other thing, too, is it's important to understand that... I mean, that's part of how you get uh, legislation accomplished is you actually have to convince legislators. And if they're engaged in the politics and you're engaged in the politics, you can set the expectation that something needs to happen on this issue. Absolutely. but And I also think that school choice is one of those issues that it's so broad. You have to do a little bit of everything. You have to tell human stories. You have to bring facts and logic and data to the fight. You have to be able, you have to have your arguments couched in very compelling terms. You have to meet people where they are. So if you're if you're meet, if you're talking to a largely urban setting, right? You know, African American mm-hmm. settings whose schools are X, Y, and Z, you have to explain to them how school choice helps them. Mm-hmm. It's a very different conversation than if you're going into an affluent Catholic school in a suburb, right? Here's how school choice could help you. That Do sort you of have thing. suburbs in West Virginia. I think your largest town's only like fifty thousand. Now that is a little <laughs> bit of a misnomer. I always argue in Appalachia, given the geography, it's more to get a better sense of the size of, of cities. You have to look at metro population. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Charleston's the largest metro in West Virginia is about three hundred thousand. Charleston, where we are, which is the biggest city, but the second biggest metro area is about 250. This is a population that has declined considerably. So we still have the infrastructure for a town here of about 90,000 city. I would guarantee you, James, if you came here to Charleston, you would say this feels a lot bigger than 49,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah, it would certainly have certainly have suburbs and things of that nature, although certainly not a you know a Detroit level or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but anyway, you have to have different arguments for different constituencies. And it's not that you're misleading people or anything like that. People have very different pressures in their life. They have very different needs and wants and desires. And I think that just it matches so beautifully with what school choice can bring. And you have to recognize that fact when you're talking to different groups and potential allies. Now, when it comes to the legislative debate and trying to build momentum for your cause, how much did it help that you could establish that West Virginia was falling behind the rest of the states? It's tough to quantify that, but I would say it's probably pretty immense. So in a state like West Virginia, we're always trying to catch up in in some ways, and we're surrounded by much larger neighbors, Ohio and Pennsylvania and Virginia, as I mentioned earlier. And so you never want to be left behind. Um, And so I think a lot of legislators began to realize it's a little bit ridiculous that 46 other states have charter schools, for example, some of whom, some of which have been around for 30 years and West Virginia doesn't even have a law on the books. Mm 
right? And I think that that recognition of that fact only accelerated itself whenever we're talking about something like private school choice, right? So um, that's a very much a part of it. So it's my hope. We, t- we tend to talk about school choice in terms of increasing competition within a given education ecosystem in a given kind of regional area, right? So the public school in this district and the private school in that district, increasing competition better for everybody, right? I think what we're going to start to see is school choice increasing competition between states, So now West Virginia has the most expansive private school choice program in the country. What did we see a few days later in Kentucky? They pass a very similar, nearly as expansive uh, private school choice program. I've already had calls and texts and emails from folks in Ohio who want to know kind of the ins and outs of what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. I think you saw the same thing in Right to Work, for example. Michigan passes Right to Work. West Virginia passes Right to Work shortly thereafter. Kentucky passes it shortly thereafter. And so these things do have something of a cascade effect. And so it's my hope that West Virginia's victory can turn into other states' victories as well. Yeah, it's surprising how uh, state policy works like that. Um, some of these ideas can spread like wildfire. Some of them are, uh, take a little bit more time. But on, for ma- on a lot of major issues throughout uh, the nation's history, whether it's um, eminent domain rules or other things like that, uh, sometimes just takes a little, bit, uh, a little bit of state experimentation to open up the issue. Now, what do you think were your opponent's strongest uh, arguments and strongest um, tactics? That's a good question. I think to I think it's very easy for defenders of the status quo to paint a terrifying picture of an alternative, mm-hmm. right? And we see that in any kind of public policy, whether it's certificate of need reform or Medicaid reform, education reform. People are they prefer the devil they know to the devil they don't, and so they'll tolerate, you know, a C minus a D plus education system. If that system could sit there and say, well, if we change something, it becomes a D minus or an F plus. And I think it's very easy to play on those fears, especially in a state like West Virginia, that's frankly not a very dynamic state in several different ways. Um, Also, the ability to just amplify their message via the traditional media. You know, obviously everybody, the the teacher strikes in West Virginia were a very sexy topic nationally. I mean, there were articles written just about every major national paper, most of which most of which were sympathetic to the union message on these things. And then also nostalgia, James, is a very powerful feeling. And in a place like West Virginia, where public schools are often the pillars of a community, they're able to utilize that sense of nostalgia, that sense of pride in one's past and sort of weaponize that against a better alternative. And so, you know, in West Virginia, I think that was a, that was immensely um, helpful to their cause as well. Um, honestly, beyond that, it, it's hard for me to say, just because if you study this issue, the, lo- the logical fallacies are legion in most of their arguments. It's just our job to point that out because we're all fish swimming in the water and sometimes we need somebody to come along and say, Hey, this is what the water looks like. Here, here are some of the issues. So that's, um, that was a big part of our job as well is here are the myth busting. What are the myths that we need to bust in order to get this done? Mm -hmm. Now, would it have been enough had it just been you and your colleagues advocating for this issue or did you need some other people to be there too? 
I mean, victory has a thousand fathers. Um, and, and so we had to have, we had to have a coalition. There's just no, there was no way a group like Cardinal given our size and resources could do every single thing required. But what Cardinal was, was the catalyst, right? And then we were sort of the, the fuel that had a steady burn on this issue. As I mentioned earlier, the longer this issue went on, the, the more obvious it was that reform had to, be, had to be there. We just attracted new allies. So you have this group is really good at doing research, right? You have this group is really good at messaging. You have this group that's really good at organizing. You have this group that's really good at talking to legislators. Those are all different skill sets. Those are all different missions. And so I think that's one of the reasons why our coalition was so effective is because we all understood that. We all trusted one another. And we all understood what each group needed to be doing and what, again, what their comparative advantage was. So, yeah, there was no way we could have done it by ourselves. We were the catalyst, and then we were sort of the sustaining fuel. Mm-hmm. Why did this reform happen in West Virginia rather than someplace else? Uh, that's a really good question. I think, you know, it's sort of that common question in, in history, right? Does history make the man or does the man make history? Mm-hmm. And in West Virginia, I, I think it was probably a little bit of both. It was an idea whose time had come in West Virginia. But it was an idea whose time had come because of efforts of group like Cardinal and Americans for Prosperity and Ed Choice and others and mm-hmm. Institute for Justice and so many other ones. So I think it was just, it was, West Virginia is a small state and, you know, I would say the amount of people that actually kind of make it make decisions or our stakeholders in a given topic is maybe, you know, under 500 people on any given issue in West Virginia. And so, you know, that's a group gotta like, be really encouraging, right? Just it is. Know that, uh, that it just takes a little bit of interest to, to cause some major changes. It's like I, it's like I said earlier, I think West Virginia and states that have, have sort of labored under one type of thinking for decades as West Virginia had, it, it resembles a balloon that's overfilled. Right. There's just so many pressure. There are so many kind of weaknesses in the system that a group like Cardinal comes along with just a little bit of a pen, a little bit of a needle on that balloon and suddenly reform happens. Now, you have to be strategic about it. You have to understand the issue. You have to bring the facts and the logic to the debate. But um, again, that's why I'm so encouraged about the future of West Virginia, because there are groups here now that are able to do that. And frankly, although it's sad to say, West Virginia is a target-rich environment when it comes to reform. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's a bright future ahead. Are you worried that you pushed the Overton window too far and that the state's (laughs) education system, uh, from parents to private schools, are just not ready for this kind of uh, level of school choice? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think it um, it would be irrational if we weren't concerned. Um... School choice, the Hope Scholarship Program, the K-12 public system, uh, any, anything that we see around us is made by man, right? So there will, it will be imperfect. It will be flawed. There will be bumps along the way. And I'll admit, too, I mean, I'm a rather introspective person. And so, you know, there would be times in the heat of the debate where I'm looking across, 
literally sometimes when I'm at the Capitol and we're, you know, school choice is being protested or whatever, I'm like, are we doing the right thing here? These are all respectable people, right? These are all pillars of their community. Everybody loves teachers. Everybody loves principals and superintendents and, and whatever it is. Whether it's fair or not, people like those. So you start to ask yourself, are we doing the right thing? Maybe we're taking too uh, too big of a bite out of the apple. And But then you take a step back. You go back to what I've been calling over the last several weeks kind of a well of conviction, right? You think about the mom that you talk to who makes $12 an hour, whose kid has dyslexia. You think about the schools that you toured and you walked through where kids are actually able to get an education. They came out of a rough environment. They go to a different environment. Now they're suddenly thriving. You think about the email that you get after an op-ed that you wrote about, hey, I love this concept. Keep up the fight. My grandkids are struggling X, Y, Z. So it's important when you're when you're engaged in these sorts of debates to have that well of conviction. Remember why it is that you're remember why you're fighting for what you're fighting for. And then proceed as a happy warrior. And that's exactly what we had to do. But I have no I have no illusion to the contrary. There will be bumps along the way, and that's okay. We're gonna get it figured out. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised whenever we see that. But yeah, of course, I was always a little bit skeptical, you know, on certain certain nights or, or whatever it may be. But uh, I tell you what, now that we're on the other side of this, I, I couldn't be more certain of, of we did the right thing and we pushed the right issue. Where can listeners learn more about the work that you do? So just go to our website, cardinalinstitute.com. We are like every other person on the planet on Twitter at CardinalWV. I'm on Twitter as well, at G-Balleng, G-B-A-L-L-E-N-G. We're very active on Facebook. We even have an Instagram account. Uh, we're very active on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter. Just go to email me, info at cardinalinstitute.com. We've increased our email subscriber list by over 300% just this year. So we are um, really making sure we're, we're building up an owned audience so we can make sure that we, ha- we don't have to rely on a third party to get our message of freedom out to folks. Garrett, congratulations for having shifted the Overton window. Thank you for having me, James. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about The Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.